This is That Marketing Podcast. Made by marketers for marketers. Hi everyone, welcome to April's edition of That Marketing Podcast. The world's quite quite different now to how it was when we, we made last month's episode. What we've decided to do is is to keep producing this content as, as best we can and as regularly as possible, as much for our own sanity as for anything else. Hopefully you're finding a way to get by, whether that's working from home, working somewhere else, or or taking time off at the moment. And maybe this pod can be just a little connection with, with the outside world. This episode's really good one, all about data. It's the stuff we rely on to, to fuel our campaigns, and but yet probably the area that has the most most potential for confusion. So we asked uh, John Mitchison, the Director of Policy and Compliance at uh, the DMA, the Data and Marketing Association, to talk to us about GDPR, using purchase data, and Dutch Tennis Associations. Don't worry, that bit will make sense when you actually listen to the pod. Um, our own Spotlight Data Supremo and Marketing Director Simon Moss is also on, on the pod this month. So lots of good stuff to, to wrap your ears around. Let's let's dive straight in with with John's thoughts on everyone's favourite topic, GDPR. Um, since GDPR came into force back in back in May 2018, most marketers have been relying on two of the six uh, basis processing data, either consent or legitimate interest. Can you sort of concisely explain to the audience what the real difference between those two is? Yeah, I think I can. Um, as you said, the it's since 2018 we've had the choice of six different legal bases for processing data and when it comes to marketing the two um, appropriate legal uh, bases are consent and legitimate interest consent is the easiest one to sort of explain to people uh, and uh, most people have an understanding of how that will work Um, and you can think of it as an opt-in okay so you ask somebody for their permission to process their data however that might be um, most commonly, people will recognize it for consenting to um, uh, receive emails from a particular company or sort of like marketing communications and you tick a box. And obviously, you've given your permission in that way um, for that company to communicate with you. Um, legitimate interest is slightly different. Um, and from a consumer's point of view, they're going to see that as an opt out. Okay, So they will be presented with a box. Um, you know, you know, when you give your details at the point your data is collected, you will also be given the chance to opt out with an opt out box about not receiving uh, communication. So those that's in its simplest sense, that's the easiest way to understand it. There's obviously much more sort of like technical legal stuff behind the scenes, but that's about it. GDPR is probably the, the most famous bit of legislation that marketers need to be familiar with. Um, fewer people know about um, PECA and, and e-privacy. How do those two um, affect marketing differently to how GDPR does? Yeah, this is uh, this is sort of like an added complication um, to data protection. Um, the obvious law, as you said, is is GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation. Um, but then, specifically for uh, electronic communications, we have um, we have PECA. Um, now, PECA. PECR, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, is the UK's interpretation of the e-privacy directive. Uh, we've so the e-privacy directive came into force ooh, in early 2000s, um, and PECA is the UK's interpretation of that, and it affects how we send communications um, by email, 
um, how we make telephone calls, send SMSs, and it also deals with um, uh, cookies as well. And a few other bits and pieces as well, because it's in the PECA legislation where business to business um, marketers get their exception to send emails without consent. It's, it's uh, one of the things that uh, makes sending emails more difficult really um, is the fact that uh, the PECA regs insist that a company must capture consent to send an email to a consumer, um, but it, it allows businesses to continue sending emails um, without that consent, which is why you and me and, and anybody, anybody with, a, with a business email address will uh, still receive B2B um, advertising or marketing communications in their inbox. Uh, the only stipulation is that you have to be reasonably confident that you're sending the appropriate person uh, an email. So no point sending something to HR, to somebody that works in uh, marketing, you know, um, and you have to provide an opt out uh, uh, with that email as well. The interesting thing about that is you mentioned the distinguishing features between a kind of business and consumer. Could you yes. also, uh, not to use the word this way, but if you were a business that was using kind of um, Google Exchange or Gmail Exchange, so you, you actually, your email address was a gmail.com and you knew that was a business address, could you still deem that to be a business email address or would that, because of the format of it, would it come under a consumer email address? Is it kind of that black and white? No, it's, it, it's not the format that distinguishes between a business uh, and a consumer. It is whether they are actually uh, a business. And when we, when we say a business, we mean like um, uh, a limited company, limited company or a PLC or, or a public institution like a school or um, uh, you know, a council or a hospital or something like that. Uh, people that are sole traders um, and partnerships, um, they are considered individuals. So that's how it breaks down, um, and that's that's the legal definition, and that's for that's the same for making telephone calls or or this uh, extension uh, exception uh, for B two B under PECA. Um, so, I, you know, I may well own a limited company, and um, I may use a Gmail address, okay? But you know that that's kind of like for the business to find out, yeah. That's if if you want to send marketing communications. Um, uh, only to limited companies and therefore take advantage of the, uh, the exception, which means you don't require consent, then it's up to you to make sure that you're sending them uh, to, to, to business entities. That's, that's very interesting. And so when you get that, so the GDPR, the PECA, and we, you mentioned e-privacy, um, and that, that sits on top of PECA, is that correct? Yeah, I've always thought of it as they kind of work side by side, really. But recently, um, there have been some European guidance that's come out, which says that PECA actually takes priority. So, you know, when you when when the two pieces of legislation are working together, as when you're sending emails, you look at PECA first uh, and PECA says you have to have consent to send somebody an email. And then you look at GDPR um, so, and then you would carry on with your your processing, um, you know, following that track. So they kind of work side by side. Um, like I said, PECA is e-privacy in the UK. It's the e-privacy directive. What's going to happen sooner or later is that that um, directive will be updated 
by an e-privacy regulation. Now, the difference between a directive and a regulation is that a regulation is um, implemented in the same way across every European member state. And so uh, we won't be able to interpret that um, for our own benefit as we did with, uh, with PECA. We will, um, we will take it on board as every other European state does. Now, I'm, <laughs> I realize I'm talking as if we are uh, still a, <laughs> a European member state, um, so, because that's the way I've been talking about it um, for the last two years, because um, the e-privacy regulation was supposed to come in at the same time as GDPR, because the two pieces of legislation work uh, so closely together, they were supposed to be updated at the same time. But obviously we got GDPR, um, but they have failed to make uh, sufficient progress uh, in the in the European legislative arena with um, with e-privacy, and so we're still working with the old PECA, and that, that, that even that in itself creates a little bit of a conflict. You've sort of got this brand new GDPR, and we're still working with the e uh, the old e-privacy, but eventually there will be new e-privacy regulation. Um, there is then the question, of course, about whether the UK will take that on in full. Um, my thinking is that we probably will. All of our discussions um, with UK government, uh, and particularly DCMS, that's the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, suggest that they would like to keep as aligned as they possibly can um, with, with the EU. Uh, the, the UK government has sort of made some noises recently that they are not so wedded to that idea. So um, it's kind of anybody's guess at the moment. Well, do, do you have any timelines uh, around that? Do you know? Has there been any published when they think the uh, directive will be updated with the regulation? Or? Um, it's, it's been a bit chaotic, actually. <laughs> for, for a while, I was like, you know, carefully following the progress of this new regulation and it seemed to be sort of like getting closer and closer and closer and then it sort of hit the brakes and it stalled and then there was a lot of mucking about and then there was talk about sending it back to the drawing board and then they didn't do that so now they're sort of still tinkering <laughs> with, with this text but there's it's almost come to a stalemate situation there's enough people that will oppose almost anything that comes out at the moment um as there are you know and there's a similar number of people that want it to go through and it just seems to be this um insurmountable battle over this text at the moment so i, I really i'm not sure what's going to happen yeah from a uk yeah, so, only perspective i think we're we're yeah. expecting the ICO, the information commissioners office to come up with a new draft code fairly soon should we be expecting any particular surprises in that or do you think it's going to be mostly a continuity type document Oh, well, that's quite interesting, actually, because um, the ICO published a draft of their new code um, in January and put it out to consultation. Um, and it's probably been the most talked about document uh, that, you know, I've ever had uh, relating to, to marketing in the last, certainly in the last five years. Um, there are a few things in there. It's, it's still a draft at the moment, um, and we wouldn't expect the final version to come out until the end of the year. Um, what they what they've done is they've they've kind of it, it, it focuses on direct marketing. It doesn't just talk about GDPR, so it talks about um, direct marketing as a whole. So it um, it, it, it combines um, GDPR with the existing PECA 
um, rules and kind of uh, tries to give a, a life cycle approach to marketing. So it doesn't talk about each individual channel on its own. It talks about planning and then sort of like purchasing data or, or collecting data and then sending your marketing communication. So it talks, you know, follows the, the life of a, of a campaign. Um, there are a few things in there. I, would, I should say, <laughs> I should say, first of all, generally, it's a good document, right? That, you know, the ICO have obviously learned a lot from two years of dealing with GDPR queries and talking to businesses and learning a lot for themselves about how the marketing world works. And, you know, 90% of it is, is, you know, good, solid uh, advice. But there are a few things in there that do have some sort of pretty far-reaching um, consequences. Uh, mainly, well, let's kick off with the, with the one that I think will have uh, the biggest impact is all around um, a particular part of GDPR, which is Article 14. And Article 14 says that if you collect data from somewhere other than the data subject, okay, so you collect that data indirectly, um, you have to communicate their privacy rights to them within a month. Okay, now that can be the first communication, or if you're not planning to talk to them um, for a long time, or you don't intend to send them a communication, you have to get their privacy information to them so that they know that you're the data controller, they know what you're going to do with the data and how they can object if they want to. Now, if in, in the simplest circumstance, let's say um, I'm, a, I'm a company and I go to a data broker and I buy some data, um, I am then the data controller and I have one month to tell people what their data rights are. Now, I can either do that at the point of first communication or send them um, a special communication but obviously if I'm just buying that data the simplest thing to do would be to let people know about their their data rights when I send them um, their first piece of uh, their first piece of direct marketing so that's that doesn't really cause anybody a problem where it, where it does cause a problem of course is for data brokers data brokers that collect data from various contributors um, they may even use public sources of data to to uh, sort of like build larger um, data sets uh, and use different parts of data that they collect for different purposes so you know i might have a name and address over here but i might get some transactional purchase history from another location and you sort of build up a big database of uh, names and addresses all of it's collected um you know perfectly legally with uh you know with people's permission or you know um you know from uh, like i said from public sources which again is perfectly legal but once that one data broker becomes the uh the data controller the article 14 would suggest that you then have to communicate with all those people and tell them exactly what you've done and what you intend to do with their data and all of that. And uh, that suddenly becomes quite a burden for some very large uh, companies. Which, sorry, if you, if you think about the number of data brokers out there in the UK and the number of people buying data and sending out marketing, even just, you know, uh, very unobtrusive stuff, you know, that comes through your, uh, through your letterbox. It, you know, I, I don't think that that was really the purpose of, of GDPR was to suddenly mean that everybody was getting all of these communications. But of course, it might not ever come to that because those companies would probably find it um, financially untenable to, to constantly be sending out all of those communications to everybody in the UK. So I think we've also got around it a little bit, but just to be, to be absolutely clear, because it's a question we get asked quite a lot. In, in the current setup between GDPR and PECA, is it, is it acceptable for B2B marketers to send send campaign, email campaigns to, to board data, particularly if they're using legitimate interest as their, as their basis for processing? Yeah, yes, it is. Yes, it definitely is. Um, GDPR doesn't make any distinction between 
um, business to business data or B2C data, it just treats all personal data as the same thing. And whether you were emailing me as an individual at my Gmail address, or whether you were emailing me um, you know, at my company at DMA um, email address, it wouldn't make any difference. Where the difference comes in is with PECA, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations, uh, and that says that you have to have consent um, to send an individual an email. So that sort of overrules uh, the sort of, um, you know, the, the agnostic approach of GDPR. And so if you want to send an email to an individual, you have to have consent, except in the case of B2B, there's this little carve out exception where you don't need consent. So for, uh, for both um, emails and SMS communications uh, in the B2B world, you don't need to have consent. You just need to check that you are you know that you're targeting the appropriate person um, within the within the organization and you have to give the opportunity for that person to opt out as well so there just needs to be an unsubscribe link on any emails that you send the um i you know, talk about doing a balancing test um, if you're using legitimate interests is, is that something you come across um or what kind of uh, bits within that balancing test would you recommend people look at um, we we yes. make sure that we build personas and have job titles um, as part of our balancing test. Uh -huh. but, um, are there any kind of bits of nuggets that you have with uh, companies that are doing those? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, th this is, and this is one of the, the differences between consent and legitimate interest that goes a bit further than whether it's opt-in or opt-out. Um, but if you want to use legitimate interest, you have to do this balancing test. Um, whereby you you know you have to uh, you have to consider the nature of the processing, the impact of the processing, and what safeguards you're putting in place. So one of the one of the key things to do here, and one of the things that I've seen people fall down on a lot, is just think that the legitimate interest assessment and the balancing test is just um, a formality. Um, but you do have to conduct this in a in a fair and unbiased way. Okay, I've seen too many people, um, you know, just write whatever they need to write to make sure it sounds great, you know, uh, and that it, it'll all go through. But you do have to consider the, you know, the impact. And when we talk about the impact, that can be a positive or a negative impact on the individual. Um, you have to think about the safeguards which you put in place. So you have to think about um, data minimization, whether you uh, might have any technical or organizational measures that might uh, safeguard that data, whether your system has been built with privacy by design, uh, whether there's any encryption in there. Obviously, you have to have uh, an option for opt out or, or um, uh, objection to processing, all these kind of things. Um, so yes, when you're when you're considering that balancing test, it's all about being fair and unbiased. Oh, obviously, data is a very um, and it's, it's an enormous topic. It's the basis of pretty much everything we do. And from people who are listening to the episode and want to want to take another a bit more of a dive into the, the thought process and how to how to think about data, is there a particular resource you can point us towards that's going to set them on the right path? Um, well, it's actually it's funny actually. I've just come from a meeting where we've been talking about all the different resources that are available at the moment. There's a lot of people talking about data ethics. There's a lot of people talking about AI. Um, and there's not much guidance for some of the more technical aspects uh, of data processing. Um, obviously, you've got guidance from various people and different codes of practice. And we're in the process at the moment of sort of considering all of these different sources 
of data and putting them into some kind of a hierarchy. But the one thing that we've decided on is that at the top of the pyramid of information here is that we're going to have the DMA code. The DMA code is a principles-based um, code of practice. Uh, it has um, four, four main principles with the overarching principle of putting your customer first. Um, and it's, it basically takes an ethical approach um, with these principles to data processing um, and direct marketing. So what we sometimes find is, you know, you can analyze the, the, the legal text, you can look at the guidance and, you know, and whatever you're doing doesn't quite fit with any of those things and you're not really not quite sure. So what we say is if in doubt, um, go back to the code and those ethical principles should be able to guide you through. And it's all about, you know, the, the kind of basics that, you know, if you, <laughs> if you ever think about, you know, if, if, if you're processing um, you know, your, your, your parents or your family's data, those sort of things that you would want to consider, you know, is this being done fairly? Would they expect to receive this? Is this the kind of marketing that I would like to receive? Is this how I would like to be treated? That kind of thing. Um, and so that's how, how we look at it. So when it comes to resources, uh, yeah, we, we, I mean, obviously the DMA has a lot of different guidance and things, but we put the DMA code uh, at, at the top of our um, information hierarchy. Obviously, it's a little bit difficult, difficult to know precisely what an, what, an, what an organization is doing internally with its data, but for, is there a particular example you can think of a company that, that seems to be handling data really well that people listening to this could really learn from and take inspiration from how they're handling it? Well, we, um, we, we run uh, uh, an awards um, ceremony here uh, every year at the, at the DMA, and there are a number of organizations that uh, enter um, it's, it's a big deal for us. It's the largest event of our year. And, um, you know, we have hundreds of companies enter for different things. And there's a number of organizations that have sort of got, um, got awards for uh, use of uh, data um, and, uh, you know, various other topics that they have there. Um, so that's a good place to, to, to start. Um, there was also um, more recently, uh, a lady called Rosemary Smith, who's worked in uh, direct marketing for um, many years. Uh, she was a DMA chair, and then she um, uh, she started her own company called um, uh, Opt4. And she's been on many councils and contributed to an awful lot of different um, marketing and, and, and data, um, uh, you know, um, bodies and you know, councils and, and guidance documents and things like that. Um, she. They, they have an award for her, which is the, the Rosemary Smith Award for Responsible Marketing, specifically looking at um, data protection by design. And there were three organizations that were shortlisted for that award um, this year, one of which was, uh, was a, a, a hospice charity, one of which was um, uh, you know, a much larger uh, travel company. Um, so yeah, again, those would be fantastic places to look for, for, for good examples. The, the one thing that we... Uh, not covered and everybody wants to know about, but have you seen any interesting um, any interesting finds come out from the ICO regarding marketing bad practice or breaches from a, uh, as I said, from a marketing point of view, maybe not so much a, uh, a general business data hold or, or storage point of view? You're right to make that distinction, actually, because a, a lot of the enforcement that's come out of the ICO recently has been, you know, about um, uh, for data breaches and things like that. Uh, there was one company which got my attention, 
um, which was a Scottish company, which got the maximum fine possible under uh, under PECA. Okay, so it's it's not a GDPR fine, but um, under PECA, and that was for making 200 million nuisance calls. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if you consider the population of the UK, um, that's that's an awful lot of calls, isn't it? I mean, that's absolutely. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> they had everything uh, on speed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> now, there, have been, there have been a few other bits of enforcement um, for, for GDPR stuff, but nothing, nothing really significant. A couple of organisations have got small, small fines, um, but mostly for for data breaches and, and that sort of thing. I haven't seen I anything say, that's really sort of changing practice or laying down any, um, you know, any precedent. Or I don't no, actually. I, I, there's one that I saw, which um, God, God bless them, that they've just gone under was Flybee. Um, I think got fined for sending emails to people that have opted out. So, are you sure you want to? That's right. There's always an interesting one how marketers uh, interpret it, law. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I mean, it, it, it seems crazy to have to say it, doesn't it? But once somebody's opted out, they've opted out. You can't. <laughs> You can't then say, did you really mean it? You know. <laughs> um, although actually, there is one thing that I and the reason I didn't think about this originally is because it's not it's not in this country, but it, because GDPR is a pan-European piece of legislation and you know is intended to harmonise the way that we look at data protection across the EU. Um, there was a tennis association that took a fine um, in uh, in Holland recently. And uh, that was for selling data. They uh, they used the the data of their members and sold them to sold it to sponsors. Um, all done, you know, in the UK we would consider this perfectly okay under legitimate interests. They did all the right things. Um, but the Dutch DPA, their equivalent of the ICO, um, said that uh, selling data like that couldn't be done under legitimate interest. So that's quite an interesting one. We're supporting the the equivalent of the Dutch DMA uh, through a, through our European hub, which is called FEDMA, Federation of European DMAs, oh, yeah. um, because th that that tennis association is um, is appealing that uh, that case. Of course, if it if that becomes the norm, if they if they fail to uh, win the appeal, that could obviously then start to have a knock-on effect into other countries around the EU. Absolutely. That's quite it's a big deal. Isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Um, clarity is sort of the main pitfall that we're seeing around. Is there another particular pitfall that people need to watch out for, or we pretty much covered that with assumptions about legitimate interest and what it allows you to do? One thing that I would be a little bit careful about with legitimate interest is when you are doing things um, across Europe. In the UK, there's some good solid advice and the, and the ICO in the UK sort of accepts the fact that legitimate interest is perfectly okay to use for marketing but you do have to you have to work quite hard on your legit, legitimate interest assessment um, you can't like I said you can't just consider it a foregone conclusion you have to put the effort in but other countries in the EU are interpreting it slightly differently now GDPR like I said was supposed to harmonize data protection across across the whole of uh, Europe. Um, but it does look like certain countries are starting to diverge and go in different directions. So if you were doing anything pan-European, I would certainly um, investigate that before making any, uh, <laughs> kicking off any big campaigns. <laughs>
John, there's a question we get asked um, every now and again, and it's when you're using legitimate interest, is it the um, from the, uh, the the recipient? Is it the basis of where the recipient resides, or is it where you're sending the email from that matters? So, for example, if I was if if the marketing automation platform that I was using was in the UK, but I was emailing uh, German um, contacts, would I come under the GDPR kind of version in Germany, or would I be under kind of um, GDPR for the <laughs> privacy of the UK? Um, that's that's a very good question, and it, and it and it is actually a little bit complicated. It, it was it was <laughs> it was fairly straightforward when GDPR was first uh, you know first talked about um, because it, GDPR is intended to protect the rights of uh, residents of the EU, right? So the 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 legislation is supposed to treat um, everybody in the EU the same. So um, if if I was a company outside of the EU, but I'm emailing a resident of the EU, then I have to abide by GDPR. The fact that we've now left uh, the EU and the fact that certain <laughs> countries within the EU uh, are changing or, you know, have slightly different interpretations of certain aspects of GDPR is going to make that uh, quite difficult. If you're doing a lot of pan-European marketing, um, you can normally nominate a single DPA to be um, I, I can't remember exactly what the word is, but it kind of like your sponsor, really, so that all, you know, any complaints would be dealt with through this one rather than having, you know, let's say you were sending communications to 20 different EU countries, you wouldn't have to deal with complaints from 20 different um, equivalents of the ICO. You could nominate one. Um, and in that case, I would focus on obviously complying with the rules of that one particular um, uh, data protection authority. Um, however, it's certainly a good idea to be mindful of these other things because you, you really just don't want to come under the scrutiny um, of these of these organizations because they they do have quite a lot of power um, and uh, obviously it's very expensive to fight uh, fight legal battles. Indeed, indeed. You just either need a good lawyer or some good insurance, eh? <laughs> yes, certainly. Yeah. That's it's really enlightening for for us and for for, for our audience because, as I said, the the, the core. Thing that we get asked um, through our customers and prospects and and um, general marketers is can you email um, without having consent in the UK and uh, I think we've definitely um, covered that and hit that on the head of you, you absolutely can using legitimate interest and as long as they're business to business email addresses or I think you called them corporate subscribers did I hear you say at the start? Yes yeah, so <laughs> Yes, but if, if if basically the person you're emailing is, uh, you know, you're emailing them um, in their capacity as somebody working for a business. Um, Perfect. So yes, that is absolutely the case, and um, there's plenty of guidance uh, around that on on our website. Uh, we have uh, we have a guide to consent and legitimate. <laughs> can't even say it now. We have a guide <laughs> to consent and legitimate interest on our website, which would explain um, exactly how that breaks down. Now, obviously, I can't sort of see into the future, but you know, when um, when new legislation comes in, uh, it's it's entirely possible that 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 exception um, may go away and all emails may be treated the same. But um, 
as that was proposed in one of the early drafts of uh, the, the new e-privacy regulation. But at the moment, I've got no, you know, I wouldn't put my money on on it going either way at the moment with the way that that piece of legislation is going. So that's just something that we have to keep an eye on. Okay, yeah, I think that's given our given our audience plenty to plenty to think that easy to do plenty to think about. So, so John, thank you very much for for joining us and taking us through all the data. Thank you, John. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you for joining us for another episode of That Marketing Podcast. You clearly have wonderful taste. We hope you found the content useful and and enjoyed it. We'd love you to subscribe wherever it is you're listening to us. Maybe leave us a review. If you can think of a topic that you, you'd like us to cover, or even if you fancy coming on the podcast and sharing your own experience on a particular topic, that you can reach us at marketingteam at spotler.co.uk. Thanks once again and happy marketing.